Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. Let's go to the annals of Bitcoin history. I want to talk about the cultural phenomenon of Bitcoin Pizza Day. Now, Bitcoin Pizza Day is the celebration of what's thought to be the first commercial transaction involving Bitcoin. I believe it was in 2010. It involved 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas from a local Papa John's. And it has become sort of a foundational myth of what Bitcoin is all about. It's sort of the thing where everyone is like, oh my goodness, you spent 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. And at one point, those 10,000 Bitcoin would have been worth north of $60 million. So we all think about this poor sap who ended up using his peer-to-peer electronic cash to do what one would do with cash, buy a pizza. And yet we remark it in the history books as something that is a bit crazy in retrospect. I think it really speaks to like what Bitcoin is all about. And I think it's kind of interesting to watch sort of this cultural phenomenon unfold relating to Bitcoin as an asset rather than Bitcoin as a means of payment. So that might have been a little bit a pie in the sky, but you know what? Pizza pie, a pun again. Let's toss it straight to Wendy. What do you got? Okay, so in the white paper, digital cash, like Bitcoin is supposed to be a means of payment. Bitcoin can actually be whatever it is you want to be. If you want to use it as a hedge against inflation, great. If you want to use it to you know, pass down to your kids later on, great. If you want to use it to actually buy things, great. My stepson, unfortunately, has many, many pieces of computer parts that are worth a lot of money that no longer work because he was using Bitcoin back in 2011 to buy computer parts off of the dark web. And that was a narrative that was a, that was a big use case back then. But now as, as times have changed, we're starting to use it in a different manner. So is this person wrong for buying pizza with their Bitcoin? No, because who really thought that Bitcoin was going to take off the way it was? Also too, I feel like it kind of relates to what all the drama that we're seeing with Bitcoin ordinals and with BRC20 tokens. Bitcoin can be, it's open source. It can be used however you want to use it. And the cool thing about that is it forces people within the Bitcoin ecosystem to continue to build and to do really cool things to help with the scalability issue and the slowness of the network. So I think that this is a cool historical thing. I don't think that this guy did anything wrong by you spending his Bitcoin because again, digital cash. Zach, digital no one cash. said he did anything wrong. I didn't I'm say just he did anything I wrong. I mean, 
I'm going to go his hard. Credit, to his credit, Laszlo is very philosophical and thoughtful on this point. We've spoken to him a number of times over the years. Uh, but it just, it does feel like if this is, if Bitcoin is a religion and this is one of the high holy days of Bitcoin, the message is certainly don't spend Bitcoin, which I think is a perversion of the peer to peer electronic cash stuff, which I think is just kind of crazy. Cause they're like, what else is there? What other, what other holidays are on the Bitcoin calendar besides Bitcoin pizza day? This is a big one. And I think obviously the message is clear to subsequent people. It's like, don't be the fool who spends early. And I think that may be a detriment to the overall health and strength and robustness of the system going forward. But again, I'm just riffing here. Will, what do you think? Yeah, a few thoughts here. One, this is an interesting story because it sort of is the one verified story of someone having a lot of Bitcoin and deciding to sell it, right? If you go to a conference, you go to a Bitcoin meetup, there's always that one guy in the corner who tells you how he lost about 5,000 Bitcoin in some shady accident. They're always false, but you do have this one verified story. So I think it is sort of like a touching stone for the Bitcoin community. The other thing they've got to bring up here is the mining aspect. The reason that this actually occurred was because Lazlo was one of the first GPU miners. So during Bitcoin's you know, transcendence into use, it started off with just CPUs like your laptop, then it went to GPUs and then FPGAs, and then finally Bitcoin ASICs, which is like industrialized what we have today. And during that first part with the CPUs to GPUs, a lot of people started mining Bitcoin really, really quickly and started putting the network into this weird imbalance. Satoshi was unhappy with it because these GPU miners were basically able to mine a lot more Bitcoin than everybody else a lot more quickly than he thought. And so there's conversations between Laszlo and Satoshi about this Bitcoin that you mined and said, hey, maybe you should like give away this Bitcoin because you have a lot of it and we're supposed to distribute all this coin to as many people as, as possible, you know, increase the decentralization of Bitcoin early on. And that's sort of how this Bitcoin pizza day came about, right? The distribution of the money is a really big part of Bitcoin. And that's one part of this whole uh, celebration of pizza day. It's not just about like selling Bitcoin. It's also about giving Bitcoin to people. Wendy, throw it up to you. I like the idea of giving Bitcoin to people. That's one of the tactics that I've used when I was boxing a lot more at the nonprofit. I would give Bitcoin to some of the kids and I would tell them to have their parents come in and, you know, have them set up a you know, like a, an exchange account. And the reason why an exchange account, not a wallet is because we're talking about a demographic of people that don't necessarily understand the tech. So again, Bitcoin is a great, giving people Bitcoin is a great way to get them excited and get them involved. It's actually one of the favorite gifts that I, I like to give. And yeah, go Bitcoin. Woo. I had pizza for breakfast today, not because I totally acknowledged that it was Bitcoin pizza day, but just because I was lazy, but what a great coincidence. Well, I was, I, it was just, you know, a classic pepperoni. Mm. Super lame. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to bring up the fact that Laszlo had these conversations with Satoshi. I think he's just become this like iconic person that deserves to be celebrated for his early involvement in Bitcoin every day with pizza today. And I, I think like, yeah, sure, Zach. I, it does really bring up this kind of message of like, hold on to your Bitcoin, don't spend it because like, you know, in the long term, it's always going to go up. But I just think it was such an iconic moment to see that like Bitcoin, this thing that was created to spend, this thing that was created to bring people outside of the traditional confines, the traditional monetary system was used, albeit 10,000 of them that would have a billion dollars at one point to buy these pizzas. And so I just love that we talk about it and get to have these conversations every year on this day. We do. And people from all over the world, from within the Bitcoin community, they gather wherever they are and they celebrate and they look back 
at how far Bitcoin has come and where it's headed. <laughs> there is something magical about that. Tuesday's top story. Crypto wallet provider Ledger delays key recovery service after uproar. If you've been on crypto Twitter for the last two weeks, you have seen one brand name plastered all along the hallways, and that is Ledger, the popular wallet service. They rolled out this new update, or were rather about to roll out this new update until all the uproar commenced, allowing for social recovery of keys. Essentially, they would split up your private key into three parts and allow for a third party to be able to reassemble that part, that third party being Ledger, in the case that you wanted them to help you find your crypto. Now, of course, crypto is digital cash. So if you lose $5 on the street, you can't get it back. In the same way, if you lose Bitcoin on the street, you're not going to be able to get it back. This Ledger device was essentially built for people who don't really trust themselves, maybe you want a third party to be able to help them out a little bit. And so they'd opt into this program. It was an opt-in. You did not have to update your uh, your hardware to this device. That did not stop a lot of people within crypto, especially in the Bitcoin circles, to be very unhappy with this product because they want all things to be non-custodial. Wendy, I feel like you have a good take on this story since you kind of sit in both the crypto land and in the normie land. Okay, so this is this is the thing. A lot of people, especially like hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, are very upset about this. And a lot of the Puritans in crypto, they're mad about this. But the reality and the severity of the situation is most of, I'm going to speak for Americans, most Americans are not tech savvy. We're, we heavily rely on society to do things for us. And who, like, can you imagine if we didn't have a service like this? And like, it's kind of like an insurance policy. It's not a really good policy, in my opinion, just the way that the PR and the marketing work for Ledger and also to crypto PR companies are absolutely horrible for the record there. But back to what's going on, I do think that we do need some sort of service that would allow people to kind of insure their crypto just in case because humans are dumb and we make mistakes all the time. But again, a lot of people are freaking out. This is how the ledger recovery hasn't even begun yet. Like it is just kind of an idea that was talked about that was promoted and people are absolutely freaking out. You do not have to use ledger recovery. It's not something that you're forced to do. So again, people are getting upset. People are making a big deal out of it. But really, when you take a step back and you pay attention to what's happening and you like, I actually read my comments on TikTok and YouTube and whatnot. I have recommended paper wallets to people for quite some time. Nobody knows what a paper wallet is. Nobody's using it. Ledger was an industry standard and it's going to be very hard to get people away from an industry standard like Ledger to use a paper wallet. Just something that's simply that's not going to happen. I know people are going to be pissed off about this take, but I'm a realist. I'm actually in touch and in tune with my audience and with a lot of the normie people. And I kind of stand with that. If you don't like ledger recovery, don't use it. But there's quite a lot of people who are going to use it and need the service. Zach, Jen, any thoughts on this? You're, you're quiet. <laughs> this is the like, time to jump gonna go next? We're I'm trying to like piece it out, right? I'll Not talk it. over I'll, each other. Okay, I'll Zach, you in, go guys. and I'll go I'll next. Thanks, Will. That was so polite of you. Um, <laughs> I will pick up that thread and I will say some thoughts. I think this is like the challenge that ledger finds itself in, right? They're trying to bridge the chasm from the crypto OGs to the next wave of users. And this product was absolutely for that next wave of users. In rolling out the announcement of this product, they absolutely alienated their true core user base, which is the crypto OGs. So I think it's actually wise of them to, to roll this back and to not try to force this change down the throats of their true customer base. People were really worried, right? This was uh, closed source code that was gonna be potentially within the, uh, the ledger stack, whether you opted in or not. And the idea that you know, your keys could be sent elsewhere was quite scary to a lot of people who really take self-custody seriously. So I sympathize with some of the concerns, but I do see Ledger as being in a tough spot here because they're really, you know, again, 
CEO Pascal, he was sort of saying, hey, this is for that next million users, right? We need to be thinking about how to get onboard people to self-custody in a way that's comfortable to them because it is scary. The idea that you could you know, lose your, lose your funds locked into a hardware device and have no recourse for, for accessing them. I'm sure that's something that they deal with all the time. So the idea that they would take that customer feedback and try to make a service that was amenable to that user group makes a ton of sense. I hope actually after they roll this back, it ultimately gets rolled out again, but as a separate product, right? You could have again, like sort of Ledger Lite and Ledger OG or whatever that branding might be, um, because it really is two different user groups. And the idea that you can apply one sort of cultural standard to both of those user groups was really misguided. And what, what, what was really what was sort of animating the anger that you saw online, perhaps rightfully so in some instances. I just want to say something really quick. People, Ledger's code is not open source. It's closed. Why weren't people pissed off and questioning that before? And then all of a sudden, Ledger recovery comes out and people are having meltdowns. One plus one equals 10 in this situation. Guys, I have a really good I, take. I'm and that is that we should launch the hash advisory service for all these businesses. They come imagine. on here. Can you imagine? They tell us about their newest product launch. Zach gives them the, the cultural breakdown in crypto. Uh, we got Jem for the law side, and then Wendy just roasts him with that fact. I think I think we got. There something. we go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm with you, Zach, on on this one. I think that no one ever said we don't need this. It was just a little bit of a shock, I think, to the ecosystem when the messaging came out. I think that Ledger, you know, are, and I think a lot of crypto companies fall into this trap. We're always thinking about onboarding the next million users, but we don't know when the next million users are going to get here. And we forget about the users who are actually using the product. And so I think the response to this, to all of this has actually been a good one and could make Ledger a stronger brand in the long term. The fact that they said, okay, we're going to halt on launching this service. We're going to listen to what people want. We're going to do, I think they're doing a Twitter spaces right after the hash today at 1230 to hear more about it. And we're going to commit to more open source code before we launch this, I think is a, a really good PR response. So despite that like PR blunder, I think they're handling it really well and they're going to come out okay from this. All right. Good stuff. Market leader in self-custody. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Wednesday's top story. Well, I don't know if you'll like this story, but yeah, it's okay. Good intro still. Kathy Wood is uh, talking about Bitcoin right now and saying that the US is not super friendly, even in the wake of FTX and responses to it. She's saying that Bitcoin performed well uh, against the backdrop of the uh, banking crisis, but Bitcoin itself is not being uh, warmly recepted by a lot of regulators. Also have a little Elon Musk tagline in here, a little wombo combo this morning for uh, your meme coin investors. Elon saying, don't put all your money, don't put the farm on Dogecoin. You know, just be a responsible investor. Why are people talking about all of crypto again? Well, I think it really just comes down to like the banking crisis we saw in the first few weeks of this year. And now Bitcoin is back on the rise. People are interested again. So we're getting some nice taglines from Kathy Wood and Elon Musk this morning. Jay, I'm going to throw the story over to you, get your thoughts on it. Wombo combo. Well, you know, I've been saying for the past two weeks that Bitcoin is having its day in the sunshine. And now 
We hear Kathy Wood saying that the U.S. is not that friendly and Bitcoin is suffering because of it. I, I wonder, and maybe will you can give me some clarity, are we confusing Bitcoin with centralized exchanges? When I read this headline, I immediately thought, you know, about all of the crypto leaders who are saying, we want to take our operations offshore. We're going to set up offshore. Coinbase recently got a license to set up in, in Bermuda. We saw Ripple recently acquire a Swiss crypto custody firm. And, and so I think, yes, the industry is looking away from the U.S., but I think that American citizens are, are still interested in Bitcoin, despite that chart that we see there. I know that Bitcoin's been doing nothing, but uh, there was some data that came out this morning that said people are still holding on to their Bitcoin and some of the numbers are really staggering, despite what we see here, that sad, sad Bitcoin chart. So I think that Bitcoin is doing okay. I think centralized exchanges are not doing so well. And the last thing I will add to this ramble that I am in the middle of right now is this morning on First Mover, we interviewed a co-CEO at Prometheus Capital, which has an SEC approved custody firm. And this co-CEO was saying, you know, there are ways to work with US regulators, despite what we're seeing in the news. And they are an example of one that did so. So I wonder if very quietly, there are some firms that are working well with the SEC, despite what we're seeing. Zach? Yeah, I mean, this is no this is no news, right? This is not breaking news that the U.S. is sort of losing its lead as it relates to the crypto industry, right? You're seeing people very much head offshore to do stuff. And you're seeing firms that were in the U.S. build products elsewhere, perhaps most notably, again, that Coinbase move to Bermuda with the derivatives exchange. Uh, I like the sentiment in the Kathy Wood piece, right? I like that she mentions the 0809 financial crisis and Bitcoin being rooted in that, right? Bitcoin is a decentralized, transparent monetary system. And a lot of people seek that out in times of financial crisis. And we saw that absolutely during the banking crisis. So sort of the reason for being of Bitcoin is rooted in that crisis that I think we, we often lose sight of. We often forget some newer entrants to the space maybe aren't as conversant in that financial crisis and what that meant to the world at that time and why Bitcoin is a direct response to that crisis. So I think from a big picture, I like that Kathy Wood is framing it in those terms, as opposed to some of the other narratives that we're seeing play out, especially in the Bitcoin ecosystem right now. But again, that big picture, not losing sight of that big picture, I think is really key, especially for a figurehead like Kathy Wood to get out there and say such, such things. Uh, Will, I saw your hand. Yeah, I mean, sticking with the whole narrative here and talking heads and big picture investors, Elon Musk talking about Dogecoin, talking about cryptocurrency, saying like, again, don't bet the farm on this uh, Wall Street Journal event recently. And the reason for it, obviously, is because Dogecoin goes up and down, and he, he does pump it quite a bit. I think it's more of a joke to him, or who knows what he actually thinks about Dogecoin. But I think the larger point that we can pull out of this is like people in mainstream investing, big figureheads like Elon Musk, Kathy Wood, they think this is a really important movement, and they want people who are in their following to invest in cryptocurrency. But they also see like the issues with it, right? The volatility in the prices. They see the issues with the regulatory side. So there's always going to be that conversation. And I think the backdrop of what Kathy is saying here with like the regulatory pushback, it's make, it makes sense. We've seen this time and time again. Just like you said, Zach, this is not breaking news. But it is just sort of like a pain point right now with what's happening with Coinbase, what's happening with some other regulators out there, like squashing down on separate teams. Jen, I'll give it to you for last word. Yeah, Elon also, he said, don't bet the farm on Doge and other cryptos. I think you're right. This is indicative of what's happening in the US. But Elon never really said, you know, go out there and put all of your money into crypto. I think sometimes his playfulness with Doge and Shiba uh, sometimes gets convoluted with, you know, him telling people to go out there 
and put all of their money in crypto. And so it was nice to see that he clarified this for people who may watch Elon and and may want to do what all those Doge people were doing about a year ago, you know, putting all their, their money into these meme coins. Zach? It is like, it is funny to talk about, you know, Bitcoin, kind of the gold standard of the crypto world and, and Dogecoin, which is perhaps like the gold standard of the meme coin world, to be fair. But they are <laughs> very opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the self-seriousness with which we talk about these things. You know, Dogecoin, to its credit, has been resilient and, you know, is probably more decentralized than a lot of the newer crypto projects out there. So it is funny to kind of have these two figureheads talking about these dueling, the dueling ends of the crypto spectrum, especially in a moment of regulatory uncertainty and angst in the U.S. Thursday's top story. Worldcoin. We love talking about Worldcoin. It's really surged into the headlines in recent weeks, largely around the hype and interest relating to artificial intelligence, AI. Now, Word of this raise had been leaked a little bit. According to sources, this was going to be in the works. And sure enough, uh, today they announced that they've raised $115 million in a funding round led by Blockchain Capital and involving A16Z, Bain, Capital Crypto, and others. Let's talk about WorldCoin. I think this is less a bet on the value of another coin and more a bet on the importance of systems that may counteract the rise of AI. And that's very much a big part of what is being announced here by Blockchain Capital in a post written by Spencer Bogart. He talks about this proof of personhood concept as being the real secret sauce behind this project as the AI rises up. I'm going to toss this one straight to Jen for her initial thoughts. Uh, Worldcoin certainly been in the news quite a bit of late. What do you make of uh, its most recent backing? <laughs> $115 million. This is crazy. I feel like we haven't spoken about a raise this big in at least a year. Maybe we have all the days just kind of blend together for me. But Zach, you're right. I think about two weeks ago, we spoke about this new product that they launched that offered up a solution for authenticating humans in the age of AI through this like biometric retina scanning orb. And I think it's really interesting how they've been able to pull their narrative together, right? So now they're offering a solution to a, an issue that we've been discussing as AI accelerates faster and faster. And they also have this crypto wallet that's part of their product that's supposed to be this really stripped down, much simpler way to hold your coins and store your assets. And so I think that they've developed a really interesting narrative, especially given what's going on in the news right now with wallets and AI. And they've, they have some big backers here, right? They have A16Z, I think I saw Bank Capital there. And so I think that they probably were able to craft a really compelling story, uh, get that in front of VCs and raise this money. I think it's a strong and good bet for VCs who are waiting out the bear market. But Zach, I saw your hand go back up. Yeah, I just want to do one last kind of note on the narrative before we maybe riff on this pivot to AI that people in the world of crypto are very fascinated by. But I think like as it relates to the story being told here by Blockchain Capital, which is the lead investor, Credit to them for really leaning into it, right? In the announcement, Spencer Bogart is very much like, I thought this was an Orwellian nightmare. And then we did our <laughs> research and our opinion has changed such that we're willing to invest major dollars in this project going forward. So to funders and projects out there, I think that's a fantastic way to communicate a message. Lean into the controversy, lean into the stuff that's already out there in the ether being discussed about this project. Don't try to sweep it under the rug, but tell me that you know of some of that drama and tell me why you're not daunted by it. And I think that was a really effective sort of technique here in announcing this funding round. So that's just the last thing on the narrative, but I definitely want to toss it to Will for his thoughts. Yeah, I mean, nice of them to pivot, but at the same time, basically there's a token you can 
always get out of your investments. So I, I don't think it was too risky for them here in the long haul. I think maybe the question here is like branding, imaging, and marketing in the future. A lot of people do not like WorldCoin and for very specific reasons. I think it is Orwellian. Like you said there, Zach, people think like Bitcoin and WorldCoin are sort of like two very distinctly different projects. One, very libertarian ethos, the other more authoritarian, or at least like uh, kind of like getting that way, right? Like maybe uh, the people at WorldCoin wouldn't say it's authoritarian, but there's definitely something there with the fact that they're scanning everyone's eyes or like keeping this data to, uh, on different repositories. They are anonymizing it, but a lot of people have concerns about this, and I think for good reason. So we do have like a little bit of a clash there. Now to the AI stuff, I, I do think that like we need to set a little context here because it's a great part of this conversation. A lot of people do think that crypto can be something that does solve AI. So not just like a world coin solution, but think about like the public-private key pairing, right? So we do see some people be like, hey, why don't I log into a website with my crypto tokens as opposed to logging in with Google or logging in with my Facebook account, right? So a lot of times these Web2 apps, they use Facebook or they use Google to make sure that you're a real person interacting with their real product. But people don't always like that and they don't like their information being linked. So there's this new project called Sign with Ethereum. It's been around for a few years now. And it's sign in with my public-private key pairing, keep my information, and the website understands that I am a real person that owns this wallet. Now, WorldCoin kind of goes a step further, right? It's like, I'm going to scan your face, I'm going to get your data, I'm going to keep it, and then there's going to be some sort of token associated with it. It's a little bit different. But that being said, like the, the general idea of crypto and AI solving the problems that they both bring to the table are there and are present, and this is just an extension of that. Adam, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I'm not convinced there's too much there, honestly, between sort of blockchains and the world of AI. The world of AI is moving in kind of a different pace. And although it is possible, certainly, and there are some problems that could be solved, I think that these are uh, both disruptive technologies on their own trajectories uh, and will remain so for quite some time, even if there are many projects. And I have talked to a number of people who are like, hey, we need a Bitcoin LLM. I've had that conversation like three times in the last two weeks. So there's definitely something there, specifically about WorldCoin. So WorldCoin's trying to solve a really hard problem that's really important that they're probably not going to be able to solve. And it's audacious. When you look at these raises, it's sometimes instructive to look at who are the people, not on the funding side, but whose project is it? And when you look at somebody like Sam Altman, that's a dude who prints money, right? Like it's, uh, again, like much of kind of the venture capital conversation is less about projects and more about the kind of comfort that you have with a particular person who you are investing in. And Sam Altman has clearly proven himself as somebody who's able to raise large amounts of capital and deliver on projects, although not everything that he does is a, is a success. It's worth kind of just talking about kind of the other side of the story, which is that that hard problem that they're trying to solve, which is how do you get around the global civil problem, right? If you're going to do something like universal basic income, how do you pull that off in a way where it isn't just going to be totally abused by, you know, billions of people around the world? Uh, and more importantly, so that, you know, people who sort of systematically cheat, like organizations and stuff like that, can't like acquire information that would allow them to benefit where they shouldn't. And that's kind of where I think this starts to break down is that to the extent that you, you know, incentivize eyeball scans, well, all you're really doing is saying, hey, if you want to steal my identity, you need to steal my eyeball or at least something that can look like my eyeball. And I don't think those are good incentives to set up. We've already seen this start to play out, not exactly like not in a gruesome way or anything like that. But we've already seen the system start to break down in China, where a black market has already emerged and people are paying as little as $20 um, for, for iris scans that have already been registered within the system. So I think that, again, like it's a hard problem. I don't really expect these people to solve it because I don't really know if it can be solved. And I think the problems that we have are kind of uh, deeper than, than it goes. But we'll see what happens. 
Zach? I just wanted to echo that I think Sam Altman is the new main character in the world of tech. And this is very much a bet on Sam Altman, right? It's, it's addressed in the post. Sam and Alex are the co-founders. Blockchain Capital thinks Alex might become a household name soon, but it is very sure that Sam Altman is sort of the main character in the world of tech and now also potentially in the world of crypto, which is kind of fascinating to watch unfold. Jen, what's the last word on this one? Yeah, you know, we say so much when we talk about this project, like scanning your eyeballs is scary and who would want to do this? And as I was reading the story, I thought like as soon as convenience is introduced and there is a reason for people to scan their eyeballs, they're going to do it. You look at Clear at the airport, that's a private company. As soon as you see that long line, I've witnessed people without thinking twice, sign up for the app, scan their biometrics and pass the line. And so I, I just have to say, we say that all the time, but as soon as convenience is introduced, people are going to be scanning their eyeballs. We That's love fair. the orb. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we should get one on the show just for fun. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.